Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, everybody. I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. One thing on the mind of anybody who's paying attention this week are the calls of former President Trump and his allies for massive protests, even violence, in response to his arraignment in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. We're not going to go into the politics of that. We're interested in the intelligence angle, the question of whether the FBI, which infamously dropped the ball on warnings of violent attacks on the U.S. Capitol back in January 6, 2021, is prepared to crush more terrorist plots by violent right-wing extremists in support of Trump outside of New York. To that end, my guest today is Ali Winston, an acclaimed independent reporter covering criminal justice, privacy, and extremism. A former reporter for the New York Times, Winston's work runs the gamut of extreme right-wing groups and ideologies from neo-Nazi fight clubs to homicidal Satanist cults, according to his bio. His reporting on police corruption, right-wing extremism, and surveillance have earned him several honors, including a George Polk Award for local reporting, an Alfred I. DuPont Award, and a news and documentary Emmy. And he's just finished a highly praised book, The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland, that's Oakland, California, co-authored with Darwin Bond Graham. Holly Winston, welcome to Spy Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Now, it looks like the FBI and NYPD have security around the Manhattan courthouse well in hand, but what about elsewhere? Do you think that, especially since the January 6th assault, the FBI and local enforcement are now better prepared to thwart plots well outside New York, to roll up other Timothy McVeighs, let's say, out there who might be planning huge bomb attacks on federal buildings like the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City in 1995. What do you think? These are all very fraught questions, of course, with the McVeigh um, bombing. There were I mean, Tim McVeigh did cross into a number of different people's uh, attention. Um, he was kind of around the militia movement back when there were there are many arguments that he could and should have been picked up ahead of time. But hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, I do think that right now we're in a moment where the United States, the federal law enforcement and local law enforcement in America, are we're not in twenty eighteen anymore. Uh, the what, what what do you mean by that? We're not in twenty eighteen anymore. We're not in a place where we have a highly politicized, um, where the attorney general is working basically hand in glove with some of the worst elements of the legitimized far right. We don't have a White House that is receptive to, if not um, in cahoots with some of those movements. I mean, people like Stephen Miller, who drew very heavily from elements of the far right, um, the Tanton Network, a lot of the nativist current that circulated in California in the late 1990s, early 2000s, they were White House advisors. Um, I don't think that's controversial to say at this point in time. But what really has changed is that the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, the bureau offices throughout the country, um, the other agencies, DHS, yes, they're involved, but their role is a little bit overblown. Um, They actually have started paying, they began paying attention, a lot more attention to um, violent 
right-wing extremists in about 2019, 2018, I think the Tree of Life Massacre in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, Christchurch in New Zealand really put them over the top. And that really, to me, um, is kind of when you started to see the actual numbers change in domestic investigations. So in 2018, the Bureau had, I'm looking at a current GAO report, Government Accountability Office report, we had about 3,700 investigations, preliminary investigations and assessments for domestic terrorism as of 2018. By 2021, we're up to over 9,000 all told. So the activity level for just domestic terrorism investigations, and those are overwhelmingly right-wing at this point in time. Um, I've got decent sources in law enforcement that have developed over time, and we've kind of gone through that transition together, talking about it, seeing who is on the radar, who's being asked about what, um, which people act, actually end up coming under investigation and then indictment. Uh, it really has changed. That being said, you know the environment has also been significantly altered by events like January 6th, which is we have what 1700 people under indictment, something like mm -hmm. that with another mm -hmm. possibly a th up to a 1000 more people, if not mm -hmm. more coming down per news reports. So well, let me ask you about that. Yeah. If I may interrupt for just a second, sure. you think it's a good use of the Justice Department's time, all these attorneys and, you know, researchers and assistants and FBI agents to be uh, fanning out across the country and chasing down people for essentially misdemeanors of tres trespassing. Is that is that a fruitful use of the FBI's time? What do you think? Well, there's two ways to think about that. One, you can look at the base charge that comes out of the um, the actual investigation, right? And you can say, oh, well, so-and-so was just charged with tra with uh, trespassing on government property, right? Um, they had, they were, you know, they broke a window, so on. They're looking at six months jail time, deferred sentence. But in actuality, there's another side to that. And the investigations that lead up to those charges, that amasses a great deal more intelligence about those networks of people who were motivated enough by an election that they felt the need to overthrow it and deny the rest of their countrymen um, their right to mm -hmm. select the government of our country. And you know, they decided that the Constitution basically wasn't worth the paper it's printed on. It's time to tear it up and over and okay. insert a ruler by force. So by mapping out all those different networks through those investigations, there is actually a tremendous amount of intelligence work and product that comes off of that. And you are seeing that played out in the prosecutions, the seditious conspiracy prosecutions of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. Um, these are not casual things that the that DOJ did. And there's always this sort of adage in journalism. There's more that goes into, you know, what you write in a story is about 10% of what is actually in your notebook, right? But, but you know that Chris Ray, the FBI director, has said on more than one occasion that he's uh, opening, what, 200 Chinese espionage cases a day, something like that. I may have the exact number wrong. Um, there's only so many FBI agents and uh, so we have a combination, uh, a critical question here of resources and attitude. Mm -hmm. um, and let's go into the attitude a little bit. What we have found uh, uh, again and again, and particularly in a recent Washington Post uh, story, that the FBI had Proud Boys almost thoroughly penetrated. But what they wanted to know from the Proud Boys is what Antifa was up to. What is your intelligence arm learning about Antifa, which they seem to think was this really tightly uh, organized underground cell of terrorists rather than the loose amalgam of uh, activists that seem to like to do street fights with uh, Proud Boys and the like. So... 
Um, do you think <laughs> is that changing at all? I mean, that has changed. Yeah. Okay. I, Tell I, me I how that's, that's that's good news. Tell me how that's changed. I would think that's changed. So Proud Boys are kind of the they're honestly the low hanging fruit. They're a white nationalist street gang. Um, I wrote a piece about them in twenty. I came to all this stuff from criminal justice reporting, from gang reporting in California, and. In 2016, you started to see members of the KKK and the Golden State skinheads and other, you know, street gangs brawl in the streets of, um, I think it was Anaheim and then Sacramento in 2016 with anti-fascists, and they hadn't been on the streets in Cal. That was a, it had that hadn't happened in California for a very long time, and hmm. by spring of 2017, there were these brawls on the streets of Huntington Beach, Berkeley, California, Riverside between more skinheads, people from newer groups, uh, older fashion groups like the Hammerskin Nation, um, some folks who were Proud Boys, certainly the Rise Above Movement, which is this first one of these neo-Nazi fight clubs that I mentioned um, that has significant crossover with the Hammerskin Nation. They were on the street brawling with people in ways that hadn't been seen for generations. And I really think that at that point in time, Law enforcement was still struggling to understand, okay, what are we dealing with? Is this, are these political rallies? Were these people fighting with them? Um, Anti-fascists, yeah, it looks like we are dealing with some of these people up in the Pacific Northwest. Anarchists, they like breaking stuff. They didn't like the WTO in, 2000, in 1999. Um, there was a little bit more of an institutional memory insofar as dealing with groups like that, dealing mm -hmm. with folks involved in environmental activism, animal rights activism. Okay, those are the folks we're going to focus on. There wasn't yes this understanding about eco terrorism as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the the frame that law enforcement had in this uh, on this conflict. And frankly, there's you know this is gonna, I will say this just as somebody who's reported on law enforcement now for about 17 years, um, local, state, and federal. There's a right wing bias in law enforcement, and that does reflect in terms of how they view like these conflicts, especially when there's such a vocal presence in the what in. DC in the White House saying, well, Antifa, they're the ones, they're the godless communists mm -hmm. that we know are going to take mm -hmm. our country into hell. So, And so there's there this long custom of going after these left-wing groups, you might say, but going back to the 1960s, going after the Black Panthers in a very vicious way and going after anti-war dissidents and during the wars in El Salvador, going after protesters and so on. So there's been a long tradition of going after left-wing groups. And not right-wing groups, although uh, there's been infiltration of the uh, white power groups uh, um, by the FBI over time. So, uh, so let's go up to the present time now. So, you think that the FBI is more on top of right-wing terrorist groups now? Just based on the conversations that I have and the sort of queries that get put in, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more familiarity with the key texts in these books, like. The book that James Mason wrote, who was a former member of the National Socialist Liberation Front in the 70s. His writings, this book Siege, is one of the core texts for groups like the Atomoffin Division and the base. Um, AWD committed five homicides. Um, their current, their founder actually was rearrested by the feds in January or February. I think early beginning of February, he was rearrested for a um, plot to shoot up power stations outside Baltimore. Mm -hmm. He'd gone down, this guy's name is uh, Brandon Clint Russell. He'd gone down in 2017, I believe, for uh, possession, uh, possession of homemade, um, homemade explosives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're much more familiar with the text. They're much more familiar 
with things as far out there as the Order of Nine Angles, which is a, as I mentioned, a um, neo-Nazi Satanist sect. The Order of Nine Angles? Oh, yeah. They um, are a neo-Nazi Satanist sect that began in Britain in the 1980s. A, in 2020, June of 2020, which was a very tumultuous time, um, a lot of things were happening. An American paratrooper in the 173rd Airborne named Ethan Phelan Melzer was arrested on base um, right before his unit was set to deploy out to Turkey, uh, south, uh, to a base in southern Turkey for a plot where he had apparently conspired with other Satanists and members of Al-Qaeda to frag his unit, to get his unit attacked while mm -hmm. on deployment. And he was just convicted um, <laughs> last year and sentenced earlier this year to 45 years in prison. And that was they the first case that established O9A as like a um, as a terrorist group. Hmm. So you Formally. might say the FBI is more woke than they used to be. They 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 get it now on right wing I mean, terrorism. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean that's a heck of a term, but um, yeah, I'm just I think they they just have their eyes open. I mean, you can't if you're looking at the nastiest propaganda out there, the people who are most motivated. If you dump their phones, you go through their devices, you go, you talk to them, you look at their clothing, their tattoos, the indicia pops out. Like you, you can't help but you can't help but put these things together and they mm -hmm. may seem like complete cartoon characters but they're not it's unfortunately real things now terrorism statutes were adopted and expanded on in response to al-qaeda um there they have not been applied to any of the right-wing groups is, is that right and 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 a couple of them are are actually international groups so bring me up to date on that please well, the terrorism, what is and isn't charged as terrorism is fungible. Um, and there are there are cases that have been charged under the 1990s, the post-McVeigh expansion of the federal code um, that are acts of terrorism and have been charged as such. For instance, Brandon Russell is charged with conspiring to, with um, attempt to destroy a power station or power facilities. And that is one of the crimes um, that is enumerated as a um, as a terrorism offense. Uh, Ethan Melzer also faced, um, I mean, his penalty, 45 years, that comes from a number of different, a sedition, I believe, was one of his charges, um, but he definitely was charged under code that faces terrorism. It's There hasn't been a quote-unquote domestic terrorism update, but there's more than enough to, um, supply in the federal toolkit to, to charge people under those codes. Also, in a state context, you can charge... Um, members of an extreme right-wing group with gang membership, with gang statues. And they actually have done that in Michigan. There were members of the base who were charged, convicted, and then um, imprisoned on gang enhancement charges. And I know that's happened in other contexts as well. So there is a bit more, um, more wiggle room out there. The international ties are a bit fraught. Um, oftentimes, the Americans will track... Um, it depends on whether or not a group is designated as an FTO, a foreign terrorist organization. There are not many white supremacist organizations that are designated as such, even though they've been involved in attacks. Um, for instance, Combat 18, an English organization that inspired uh, attacks such as a couple of nail bombings in um, in London in the late 1990s. They would send they sent people over to Balkans to fight over there um, in the Yugoslav War. They have ties to Blood and Honor Network in Germany, other violent groups that, back here in the states, the Hammerskin Nation, and they they're not classified as a foreign ter terrorist organization. Um, so it's a little bit more fungible. The Azov Battalion, for example, the Ukrainian neo-Nazi movement volunteer battalion made up of far right folks um, that now is kind of a broader social movement in Ukraine. 
uh, they provided a lot of the soldiers. They're dispersed now through other units in the military in Ukraine. They provided many of the soldiers who uh, defended the um, Azov style, uh, um, the steel plant in Mariupol. They're kind of considered heroes of the nation now. But in a scad of recent court cases from, I want to say, 2018, 19 through the present, you can see that the FBI considers the Azov movement as a key radicalizer of American and European far right, um, far right members, and that they have ties to groups like the Rise Above movement and so on. That they are really, you know, they were initially nominated as an FTO uh, designee, but that never actually got through Congress. I want to talk about the challenge of stopping all so-called lone wolves, uh, but we have to take a break for a minute. We'll be back in a second. Okay, I'm back with Allie Winston. Thanks for hanging around, Allie. This is really fascinating. So uh, Tim McVeigh was a so-called lone wolf, but he was inspired by other groups and organizations. So we there's, there's not much that can really protect us from the Timothy McVeigh's unless uh, maybe that's not a good example because there is evidence that he should have been picked up. Yeah. But a guy who's just getting inspired by, you know, getting fired up reading uh, messages on social media, true social, <laughs> the former president himself, and, and wants to take something in his own hands and, and is going to go out and build a big uh, bomb and put it in the back of his truck and blow up a federal building. As we got, have we improved on chances of stopping hits like that? That's a difficult thing to talk about because sure it's so hard uh the propaganda environment now is so much more fluid and frankly more prolific than it was in mcveigh's days um you have the ability now to disseminate information far faster to a much broader audience with a couple clicks of, of a button or you know a couple taps on your phone so mcveigh was kind of a regular Let's use this example because it actually is a decent example if we're talking about the differences between then and now. He was a regular on the guns, um, the gun show circuit, um, had you know distributed white supremacist propaganda therein. Um, that makes him one of thousands. One of thousands, exactly. Tens was, of thousands. He was linked in with the um, the Michigan militia movement. Uh, there were also connections between himself and a group of bank robbers in the Pennsylvania and Ohio area, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, called the Aryan Republican Army. Um, whose money apparently may or may not have been used to finance the OKC bombing. Um, and the Oklahoma City, the Murrow building had been the target of a number of other um, ideations by white supremacist folks. So there were signs out there, whether or not you can draw through the data and parse down to it, it's very difficult. Um, and I don't want to second guess something that happened when I was 10. But huh. what we're, it's, look, I remember it very well. Um, but what, Really, the difference now is that you have, let's take the example of the shooter in Buffalo last summer, Peyton Gendron. Young man, no ties elucidated in court records or anything else to specific groups, um, specific organizations. However, he was on a couple online chat rooms where individuals, you know, afterwards it came out that they, oh, well, we knew who he was. Apparently there was a former federal law enforcement official in one of those rooms that didn't report that up. That's a mm -hmm. significant problem. Um, yeah. But there's also another side of it too. Gendron's manifesto was very, um, how do I put this? It was very uh, well-read. It was very eloquent in terms of the language and the terminology and the reference points of mm -hmm. this certain section of the far right. Siege, Adam Waffen, this kind of, uh, people call it, it was accelerationism. Inspiring. 
it was mm-hmm. inspiring. Like he knew exactly what the references were. Um, he was talking about white replacement. He was talking about the need to tear down society, to trigger collapse and to, you know, out of the ashes arise a white um, national socialistic dictatorship. Um, and he did say in his manifesto, there are groups who I draw inspiration from. I won't name them, but they know who they are. Gendron is very representative of kind of the aims of a, I'd say the most influential propaganda network in the far right uh, at this moment, at this point in time, it's the Terragram Collective. And they're trying to basically use tons of PDFs, uh, all, you know, digitized books, videos, podcasts to create lone wolf shooters. Wow. Who are those folks? Tell us a little bit more about them. I've never heard of them. Yeah, this is the sort of stuff that is kind of in the weeds. But if you look, spend 10 minutes punching through a couple of the most, um, really the most noxious Telegram channels on the extreme right, you'll find their propagandas everywhere. Telegram are a collective of young individuals, um, 30-somethings, 20-somethings throughout the United States and elsewhere, um, who have developed a very slick, highly produced set of propaganda pamphlets, um, hundreds of pages each that just run the range. They cover an incredibly wide range of topics going from police brutality, anti-capitalism, um, anti-cop sentiment, um, anti-Semitism, let's see, explosive manufacturers, three arms, firearms milling. Yeah, the entire menu. Yeah, I mean, ra- but the specifically also radicalizing people who are MAGA, radicalizing folks who are kind of mainstream mm-hmm. conservatives and drawing them further out and blackpilling them. Yeah, it's very much the same techniques as Al-Qaeda use in social media. Um, so there's nothing against the law in that, right? Propagandizing. Depends what country you're in. What, in the United States? Well, a couple of them aren't American, and they've actually been uh, popped and rolled up over there. Um, a guy in Slovakia um, was uh, Pavel Benedict was arrested last year, and his um, he was apparently one of the main propagandists in that network. Also, some of these people go a little bit further out, um, and they don't just talk about propagandizing. They try and recruit people for real-life attacks. Brandon Russell, the former leader of Atomwaffen Division who just got rearrested, he is in, and I've seen them, he's in all of the Telegram chats. He's through throughout it. So he actually went from, came out of prison. He was on, he was on court, uh, court he was on supervised release while all this is happening. He'd served time in Terre Haute in the, uh, in a, you know, specialized unit where they put a lot of white supremacists now, uh, communications ma- uh, management unit, the CMU. And despite being in there, he didn't de-radicalize. He served about five, less than five years got out, is on probation, and goes right back into these worlds and gets arrested and is now charged with conspiring to blow up power plants outside Baltimore. So they're not just involved in propaganda. A lot of these people go further into that. But it seems that the FBI doesn't have the authority to infiltrate these groups until they hear calls for specific violence. They're already there. They're already doing assessments. They have plenty of informants looking at these groups. I'm quite aware of what they're aware of and what they're not aware of. It's when the actual case goes from an assessment to a preliminary investigation to a full investigation. And then some people drop out. Does that mean we've moved the First Amendment goalposts a little bit since uh, January 6th? I would say we've moved the First Amendment goalposts a lot since 9-11. That really is where the assessments come from. For sure. And the FBI has been incredibly intrusive upon Arabs and Muslims in this country, as we know from reporting by Janet Reitman in the New York Times Sunday Magazine that uh, FBI had really flimsy predicates to go knock on uh, uh, 
Muslim American Muslims doors, and therefore their names got into the system, even if they haven't done anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, there's always the risk of that, certainly. Um, but that's the that's the kind of rule book that we're looking at. You know, the domestic intelligence operations guidelines that were leaked out. I think it was to the Intercept some years back. They're really important. I think that didn't get enough attention, and not enough reporters really understand what rules the FBI can operate under. Um, they do have a tremendous amount of leeway for intelligence gathering purposes. That also, you know, intelligence cases are not necessarily criminal cases. They are they run kind of parallel and sometimes intersect. Yeah, we kept hearing, you know, I'm thinking of a story in the New York Times not that long ago about FBI and Justice Department officials saying again and again, well, we have First Amendment uh, prohibitions on monitoring these groups and, and infiltrating these groups. And it seemed to me they didn't worry about any of that when it came to Al Qaeda yep. or Muslims in general, anyone, you know, uh, that or that had you know bad uh, a name that that they didn't know how to pronounce. They'd go after um, so that seems kind of an excuse, but we all want to be careful about, we don't want to, we know about the bad days of the FBI and the incredible damage they did against Martin Luther King and civil rights movements and so on. I mean, we got to be careful about what we want the FBI to do. We got to watch what we wish for, as we say. So are, are we, has the FBI, uh, uh and the justice department attained, a balance on civil liberties and terrorist threats from right wing is it's just about right or is it still wrong it's so it it, it the january 6 cases are going to be very interesting to watch play out uh because there's so many of them and it's really hard to kind of get your head around them um there are going to be cases about okay there are people who clearly committed acts of violence who assaulted police officers who um, breached the Capitol. Um, then there are going to be people who got caught up and were at what they thought was a political rally. Um, I don't know what they've been charged with, but you know the reporting over that particular event, I think, is very important to watch. With regards for some of the other groups, um, you know, the Proud Boys have been charged out. A lot of these people are being charged for crimes for that have been caught on tape. A lot of the ones who were charged from political rallies, so it's mm -hmm. you know they're being charged for street brawls or being charged for stuff like that. There's another sphere of this, which kind of ties in with the Ricky Vaughn, Douglas Mackey trial the other day, whereby a right wing propagandist, kind of a key person uh, in MAGA Twitter was being charged with um, inter election interference for trying to for texting African-American for, you know, spreading propaganda, convincing African-Americans to vote by text, which is, as we all know, that's not a way to vote. Yeah. His entire point was to suppress <laughs> the vote. Um, that's when you start to kind of bleed into a different area of the investigation. I actually would say that some of the um, worst, like aside from what happened to the Arab American community, some of the worst violations that happened in terms of domestic terrorism charges um, did happen with left-wing folks um, down the years. Um, animal liberation, earth liberation folks, I think really got the sharp end of the stick. I mean, in 2005, they were being touted up there as the number one domestic terrorism yeah. in America, which is, this is four years after 911. Eye popping. Um, so, you know, when, when you hear these, this, this testimony in front of Congress and these statements by high ranking bureau officials, you know, it, it's kind of some, there's an adage that I adopted while reporting on law enforcement. You don't want a source at the top of the bureau. They're useless because they're there for only so long. You want somebody maybe halfway down the pecking order, somebody who's a supervisory agent, somebody who's been there for a decent amount of time, has subject matter expertise, um, and can actually tell you what's happening with the line investigations. Um, 
because the line investigation is almost always different from the political line because the sure. bureau director is trying to appease whatever sort of he's trying to appease congress he's trying to appease the current person in office uh, we unfortunately saw a ton of that with trump um in terms of with what the bureau did and their direction that they took well you know, chris ray said we had no intelligence yeah, that would have warned us about and that's just a flat out lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. And he honestly, he should not be the bureau. I, I don't really compile on this stuff, but that was just that flew in the face of everything. I mean, yeah, it, it, they were advertising it. Yeah. I mean, all you had to do is read the newspapers, you know, so all <laughs> social media and you knew it was coming. In fact, I talked to a a, a city, D.C. Uh, intelligence official uh, about a week before nine, uh, before January 6th. And he said, we're all over. It. We're on top of it. So yeah. Metro was all over it for sure. There was there was certainly a disconnect. But uh, to wrap it up, this has been fascinating. A lot of people like to know, or at least a lot of people of a certain type, maybe me, uh, would like to know why aren't politicians who are causing calling for sedition under more of a law enforcement microscope? Well, um, I think it takes a brave exact. I think it takes a brave officer and a brave supervisor to actually decide. Okay, we're going to open an investigation into this politician for their words and their actions. I mean, there I mean, are- it is, we, uh, we understand it's, it's difficult. They have uh, free speech protections as members of Congress. Um, but when you're calling for violence and civil war, like a certain Georgia congresswoman whose name I won't mention, mm. uh, who's featured on 60 Minutes, yeah. by the way, tonight, yeah. um, which is a confounding kind of thing to me. But uh, the, the FBI, if the FBI is, you know, wary of, of stepping on the toes of right wing extremists, imagine how they feel about investigating you know extremist politicians it's a dilemma well it's, it takes courage and honestly um you know free speech is the first amendment but per our jurisprudence it's not absolute they're still firing a crowd of theater i mean there are yeah, there are lines exactly. to which you can go up to and tow them and unfortunately you know that's what the former president did and i believe he crossed them i believe a lot of the members of congress crossed them a lot of the members of congress were involved in giving tours to a lot of the same people that showed right. up at the Capitol afterwards. And honestly, I think the January 6th committee report, the committee work was fantastic. I think the report is significantly incomplete. And a lot of that, um, you know, Ryan Riley at NBC News did great reporting about, uh, you know, he got really into the um, investigators world and sourced up brilliantly um, and kind of in his reporting on this line. And I hope he puts it in the book that he writes about January 6th. Um, you can see a lot of the discontent with the investigators who believed and frankly saw the connections between the alleged between the not alleged between the insurrection attempt and the politicians who were urging it on and giving succor to these people. Um, but you know, that's this is all a level kind of removed from the stuff that I really pay close attention to, like Terragram, like Adam Waffen, um, the Rise Above movement. Their founder actually was just picked up in Romania last week on a uh, four-year-old conspiracy to riot charge out of LA, which just shows you that there are when prosecutors and agents, bureau agents get their teeth into a case like this, they don't let them drop if they lose at the first bite of the apple. They go after them because um, they see that these people have kind of grown up and they, you know, five years on this guy, Robert Rundo, you know, he's actually become a very big uh, kind of hinge between the American far right and the European far right. And they recognize that. So they go after it. But, you know, the. the um, and, and we've seen some of the far right activity and. In- 
in Germany, let's say, has been really kind of chilling. France. You know, uh, France is a it, huge it, Or scene. in France, right. Uh, but I'm just thinking of the, the plot that was rolled up um, a few months back of Germans who wanted a coup d'etat, trying to do a coup d'etat. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's hard to know whether that we should take that as sort of a Gilbert and Sullivan kind of ridiculous well, thing headed by this pretend aristocrat and so on. But there were some really serious uh, right-wing paramilitary people involved in that. So Cops. A lot of police cops. officers, a lot yeah. of police officers, uh, Bundeswehr as well, the military there. Um, yeah. You know, that Do you movement... see that? Can you see that happening in the United States, by the way? Yes. Yes, cops. you can. I yes, mean, can. I know. I, I wrote last year a story about hate speech in classified chat rooms uh, among intelligence personnel. Uh, uh, listeners don't know, but there there's like a, a Twitter for intelligence personnel it's uh, not deeply classified. It's not up there at the top secret level, but it's the way people can exchange it. The idea is to exchange ideas about, you know, intelligence and security mm -hmm. and so on. And it, it became politicized around 2019. And people started, you know, saying, you know, voicing their support of Trump and going after left wingers and and against uh, gays and trans uh, transsexuals and so on. So, um you know, that was just a, 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 a dumpster fire of hate speech, as one of the insiders uh, described it to me. So but we haven't really we have. But anyway, I interrupted you. You say you could see a plot involving military and police officers. There are plenty of elements of the military that were at January 6th. There were intelligence analysts. There was a retired Air Force colonel. Uh, there were a lot of reservists. There was a DEA agent. There were dozens of cops and sheriffs. Um, Seattle sent, there were six active duty members of the Seattle Police Department who flew across the country as far as you can get away from DC in the, in the lower 48, pretty much. Flew across the country and were at the <laughs> Capitol during the insurrection. Um, I'm actually working on a project with the British Broadja uh, Broadcasting Corporation about the kind of radicalization of American law enforcement. It, it's very notable Um to see how police and sheriffs have drifted to the right. You know, Trump's made a lot of attempt to court law enforcement and it was quite effective. Um, I mean, the NY, you know, the LAPD banned the thin blue line symbol that they claimed had been adopted by right-wing um, extremists. They said, listen, just don't wear it. It's not worth the trouble. Who cares if at one point this represented law enforcement allegedly, although I think it was a reaction to Black Lives Matter in 2014, just, don't do it. Whereas in New York, there's blue, thin blue line stuff and Punisher skulls with a thin blue line down it all over every single cop precinct here, all over every NYPD precinct, their personal cars, their vests, they have these morale patches. It's just, and that's here, you know, that's not even talking about the Pacific Northwest or the South, which is where it's even more rampant. Um, it's not to well, say every cop is like this, but it, there's a, really a thorough penetration of police culture in this, in the U S with this, um, this far right ethos and if a few people or a couple dozen officers in the right department go the wrong way um think of, for instance if dc metro pd hadn't responded that day if dc metro pd was a department where there had been a substantial penetration of far right ideology into the department mike fanone um the former dc narcotics um narcotics officer who wrote a book about his experience and his um at January 6th and his experiences afterwards has said, you know, there are people in my department in DC Metro who've said, you know, I'm a traitor, I'm a liar, I'm a crisis actor, all this stuff. 
But mm-hmm. imagine if there had been more officers in his own agency who had felt that way at the time and felt strongly enough to switch sides. Well, there's there's also a, 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 a historical a custom against squealing on anybody else in the department. So uh, the Serpico phenomenon. So anyway, this is uh, fascinating and, and, and more than a little frightening. I hope you're not exaggerating or dramatizing this too much. Uh, I don't I think wish I were. Anyway, uh, I have a feeling we're going to have you back on this show because this issue is certainly not going to go away. Uh, going to go away. We can hope, only hope it doesn't keep metastasizing. So anyway, my guest has been Ali Winston. His new book is The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland. Thanks a lot, Ali. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our entire podcast archive available at our home at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please also check out the Spy Talk column on Substack, where my colleagues and I offer fresh reporting and analysis from the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Until then, I'm Jeff Stein. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.